If you have your Bible with you, or, or the one in the pew in front of you, if you'd please take it and turn to Matthew chapter 13. And when you found your place, I'm going to ask you to stand as we hear read together the word of the living God. Matthew chapter 13, beginning in verse 44, this is the word of the Lord. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all that he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you again for your word. Lord Jesus, for these parables that you spoke in real time and in real space to change people's hearts and lives and to teach us the truth about who you are and about life in your kingdom. So we thank you for that. And we pray, O Spirit of God, now that you would use these parables for the same purpose in our lives, Lord, to teach us and to, to change us so that we know how we are to live in your kingdom and to worship you as the king. So we submit ourselves now to you and to your truth and to the work of your spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much. You may be seated. I did a little bit of acting when I was in high school and college. Now, the good news about that is that it was very little acting because I cannot act. I don't even like to act. But friends said, oh, come on, it'll, it'll be fun. So in high school, we did a production of Agatha Christie's Ten Little Indians. And I was cast as a rich, drunken playboy. <laughs> I know, right? That is wrong on so many levels. I didn't drink at all in high school, so so much for the drunk. You know, my character drove a British sports car. I drove a 1970 Nova. I was six feet, two inches tall, 137 pounds. So much for the Playboy, but I did have great hair. Without the hair, I probably weighed 127 pounds. Anyway, the point is I felt terribly miscast. In college, once again, friends said, oh, come on, try out for the play. We'll have a great time. And so I did, and, you know, I got a part in the play. But I was also given the part of understudy for the lead, you know, the star of the play. Well, I never bothered to memorize any of the lines of the lead, and and I was always stressed about not knowing any lines because what if something happened to the lead? And so all I could do is pray that nothing happened to him, and thankfully, it didn't. But all of these experiences worked together to give me a recurring dream that I've continued to have through all of these years. And in this dream, I'm standing in the wings and people are pushing me out onto the stage saying, go, go, you're on. But the only problem is I have no clue what the play is. I have no clue what my lines are. I have no clue in the dream what I'm supposed to do. And so I just stand there, hands by my side on the stage, completely lost. A nightmare, isn't it? But sometimes dreams reflect reality. 
And sometimes I think we feel that way in our lives. We feel a lostness, like we don't know what we're supposed to be doing, particularly millennials. You know, what, what are we supposed to be doing? What are we supposed to be saying? I'm sure I'm supposed to be writing the script, and it's supposed to be deep and meaningful. You know, for the millennials, all of us, though, are the same. We, we have that sense of, uh, of lostness or that sense that we are on our own to make it and make our way through this world. Well, the good news is that these parables of the kingdom of heaven at which we've been looking for the last couple of weeks show us how wrong we are if ever you and I should think that way. Jesus tells us these parables of the kingdom to orient us so that we know exactly where we are. He tells us these parables so that we know what it is that you and I should be doing in our lives. As believers in Christ, when we are in the kingdom of heaven, we are not lost at all. We're not left to figure out life on our own, to do what we will. No, instead Jesus tells us what life is to be like. Look in Matthew chapter 13 at verse 24. Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like. Look in verse 31, Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like. Look in verse 33, Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like. Look in verse 44, Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like. Look in verse 45, Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like. Look in verse 47, Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like. So you see, we're not lost. We're not on our own. Jesus tells us so clearly the kingdom of heaven is like. It's already defined. And who makes up the kingdom? The king and the people who live in it. They make up the kingdom of heaven. The king who reigns over it and the people who live in it. It's already been defined. The parts have already been cast. Newsflash. You and I aren't the stars, okay? We're not. Jesus is the star. Jesus is the king. You and I, we are supporting casts. And in in all things, we are to point to Christ, as it says in Colossians 1.18, so that in everything, Christ might be preeminent. This is the role, even, of the Holy Spirit of God In the kingdom of God, Jesus tells his disciples in the upper room, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. That's the role even of the Spirit, to point to Christ. And so you and I will be lost. We'll feel helpless. We won't know what to do if we don't get the roles straight. So again, Jesus is the star. He is the king. In all things, in all things, Christ is preeminent because Christ is the ultimate expression of the love and the grace and the mercy and the compassion and the righteousness of God. They all find their full expression in Christ who is the fullness of God in bodily form. Would you agree with that? Amen. So yeah, we agree. And the amens have been spoken in affirmation. And so it's our role in the kingdom of heaven to clarify our role every day of our lives 
so that in our lives we aren't trying to upstage Jesus with our own wants, with our own expectations, pushing them to the forefront, pushing them into the spotlight. I might not think that were necessary for us to do every day. If it weren't for John the Baptist, John, the man who fulfilled Scripture by preparing the way for Jesus, John, the man who who literally pointed to Jesus and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John, the man who, who baptized Jesus and saw the Spirit descend on him like a dove. This John finds himself in prison. And I don't imagine that John ever expected that that would be a role that he would ever have to play in his life prisoner for Christ. But there he is. And so from his prison cell, he dispatches a messenger to Jesus with this question. Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? And so John is moved from pointing at Jesus and proclaiming he is the one to asking, are you the one? Jesus wasn't following John's script. And so John isn't really sure if Jesus is the real star. Maybe Jesus is just the understudy. Perhaps the the real Messiah is yet to come. John didn't have the roles straight. He's not the star, and he doesn't write the script. Neither does the crowd of more than 5,000 people that Jesus miraculously fed with with the, the five small loaves and the two small fish. That crowd was so amazed at Jesus' ability to miraculously give them all that they needed and even more than they needed that they decided that Jesus must be their king and if Jesus refused to be their king, they would make him king by force. But all that changed the very next day. Because the next day, Jesus challenged them. He said, I'm the bread of life. And when he said that, people began to grumble. Jesus said, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. The people said, well, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? And then Jesus asked the crowd directly, do you take offense at this? Then what will you think if you see the Son of Man ascend to heaven again? And that was the last straw. The crowd did not like Jesus' script. And so instead of making him king by force, the Apostle John remembers from that time on, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed Jesus. He wasn't the king that he wanted them to be. Not the kind of Messiah they expected But see, the crowd didn't have the roles right. They are not the stars. They don't write the script. Neither does Jesus' own family and friends. Remember a couple of weeks ago, we talked about what happened? When Jesus' own people heard about what he was doing, particularly that he was casting out demons, they went to take charge of Jesus, for they said, he's out of his mind. See, all of these people, need to be repositioned, need to find their roles, need to know their place and Jesus' place. And I think that we need to be repositioned here as much as the crowds that followed Jesus. 
even though we know the full story, the crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension, Jesus' session even now sitting at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, even in spite of that, we are not unlike the people of Jesus' day. Our desire is often to make God's story fit into our story. Instead of the other way around, seeing that our story is just a small part in the bigger story that Jesus is writing. And very tragically, it's often the church in America that tacitly and sometimes explicitly promotes this view. The church, even today, we have made people preeminent. We've said, this is all about you. And we have done all we can to, to gain their affection. And we have turned it into a buyer's market. Just tell us, tell us what you want, whatever you want, and we'll do it. If it means you'll just come here and be a member of our church. And then we wonder why it is that people expect Jesus to fit their expectations. And we get frustrated by how demanding people are and yet how non-committal they are at the same time. And so truly... It's the same song, second verse. It seems to be the human condition that we want our needs and our expectations to have center stage in the spotlight. Well, Jesus knows that to be true of us as he knew it to be true of the crowds. That's why he told them the parable. He loves us enough not to allow us to write the script ourselves. It would be a bad one anyway. He loves us enough not to leave us on the stage all alone, lost, not knowing what to say, not knowing what to do. No, instead, he tells us what the kingdom is like. And so in these two parables this morning, there are just two aspects of the kingdom at which I want us to look and at the requirements that that they demand of us. Look again in verse 44. The kingdom of heaven, Jesus says, is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all that he had and bought that field. So here's the first aspect of the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that produces joy. And when the man looked at the treasure that he discovered, he was overjoyed by it. So how is it that Jesus intended to reposition the the disciples to whom he was telling this particular parable? How is it that he wanted this parable to overcome their expectations of his kingdom so that they could find their proper place in it? What was their life like on a daily basis, spiritually speaking, when Jesus told them this parable? Well, perhaps it was something like this. Morning comes, you wake up, You open your eyes, a little bit disoriented, not fully awake. You see the sun shining, sky's blue. You hear the birds singing, beautiful. You feel the the fresh breeze through the open window, and and your initial reaction is, is joy. This is beautiful. And then slowly, you become fully awake, and you remember where you are, and you remember, oh, yes, 
I have to live for God today. That means there are a lot of rules that I have to obey, lots of them. There's a lot of things I have to do today to earn God's favor and to avoid his punishment. And so then you dutifully sit up in your bed so that this huge burden can be strapped across your shoulders to bend you down and weigh you down until the end of the day when blessed sleep comes once again and you can forget for a while that you have to serve God and live in his kingdom. That description is not completely fiction. Jesus says in Matthew 23, The scribes and the Pharisees tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. The New Living Translation says that they crush people with unbearable religious demands and never lift a finger to ease the burden. This is Jesus speaking. So how odd it must have been for those listening to Jesus' parable to link the kingdom of heaven and joy. The two just didn't seem to go together. And so Jesus has to reposition them. The kingdom where Jesus reigns The kingdom in which he has completely taken care of the biggest problem they have in life. And that's sin. He's taken care of that problem because he paid the ransom that was demanded. A ransom was demanded and Jesus says, okay, I'll pay it. And he paid it with his life. And as soon as that ransom was paid, the captor, sin and death, was required to to release those in his grip. And to transfer them out of the kingdom of darkness and put them into the kingdom of light. Life in that kind of kingdom is not a burden. It's a joy. Would you agree? And the joy comes from this. That we found this treasure. And the treasure is Christ. He is the source of our joy. Our happiness, maybe. Our joy, Always, because he is that priceless treasure. He is absolutely imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. He is forever the same. And no economic downturn can decrease his value or just liquidate him altogether. It's never going to happen. And so all those circumstances in our lives that do steal our happiness, sickness, death, financial crisis, relational problems, disappointments of all kind. In the midst of those, our joy remains because Jesus remains. And that's the good news. He is ours and we are His. And that's why the kingdom of heaven is a place of such joy because we have Christ. But here's the thing. For all of us, we won't be joyful if we don't know Christ. And by here, I don't mean knowing Christ in the sense that, you know, you've come into a relationship with Him. 
you've confessed your sins, you've turned in faith to him, that brings great joy without question. But at that point, you've only just begun to know him. You know him only as much as you would know your spouse if you never talked to your spouse after the moment you said, I do. Christ is not going to be your joy or my joy until we walk with him. He's not going to be our joy until we meet with him in his word and meet with him through prayer and meet with him just by being quiet and meditating about all that he is and all that he has done. So I'm just saying, don't expect to be joyful if you don't commit to these practices. You will have so little reason for joy because you really know so little about who Jesus is. And when you do know him, that knowledge of his love and his goodness and his mercy and his grace, it's going to come through. Sometimes it's going to be bright in your life and just just completely envelop everything. Other times in moments of darkness, that joy might just be like little shafts of light poking through. But nevertheless, there is the joy. The joy is ours. Not only are we to have joy within us, but we are to be reflectors of joy. You and I are to reflect joy because people are attracted to joy like moth to a flame. And so this parable needs to reposition us as individuals and as a church. I don't know if you're aware of this, but the church has not always been perceived as a joyful place, right? It's often seemed like a place for sad, shrunken people. Apples are kind of expensive here in Charleston, aren't they? And so we don't really waste apples. We eat them. But where I'm from, it, it's, just, it's like apples grow on trees. Oh, that's right. They do, everywhere. Just pick whatever tree you want. Go pick an apple off the tree or pick one up off the ground. Apples are everywhere, so we could afford to kind of, you know, waste them. And, and one of the ways we, we wasted them was making apple dolls. Have you ever seen those before? You take a, a fresh apple and you peel it and you cut out two little places for its eyes and a place for a nose and a place for a mouth, all right? And then you leave that apple in the sun to dry. And when the, when the apple is completely dried up, you know, it shrinks and it shrivels and the face that you've carved is this wrinkly, shriveled, really old, unhappy looking person. Have you ever seen one of those apple dolls? Anybody ever seen those apple dolls? So ugly? Well, you know what? If the world... We're casting the part of Christian. The world might say, oh, let's get us an apple doll, right? I wonder how many people have walked away from the church because, well, Christians look so sad and shrunken and dried up. Now, that doesn't describe us truly. Honestly, it doesn't. But We're talking about the church at large, and I think this is, by and large, the perception that people outside the church have of Christians who are inside the church. And that perception is not completely without foundation. The church today is often like the people of Jesus' day were under the instruction of the Pharisees and Sadducees. 
They just want the burden off so they can experience joy and beauty. See, God has created beauty at every turn for us to to see and experience and enjoy. And faith in Christ, regardless of popular opinion, faith in Christ only intensifies and magnifies our ability to recognize and enjoy beauty. Faith in Christ does not diminish our ability to see and experience beauty. And so when you and I are playing the roles that Jesus has given us in his kingdom, people should flock to the church, not flee from it because people say those people, those people who know Jesus, those people know true beauty. Those people have beautiful joy. They're not shrunken. They're not sad. They're not dried up. They are joyful people. That's what Jesus says in the parable. The man that found the treasure was full of joy. Jesus prays in John 17 in the upper room. Father, I'm coming to you now. But I say these things while I'm in this world so that they may have the full measure of my what? You know it. What? Joy within them. Paul writes, rejoice in the Lord always. I say again, rejoice. For C.S. Lewis, joy was a theological, a deep theological concept that spoke to deep longing within us. And C.S. Lewis reasoned this way, and this is what he says. If we find in ourselves a longing which nothing in this world can fill, then we can make the assumption we were created from for another world. And so for Lewis, joy was the pointer to that other world. He writes, joy is the serious business of heaven. And in his autobiography about his early years, entitled Surprised by Joy, he writes this, joy was valuable only as a pointer to something other and outer. While the other was in doubt, the pointer naturally loomed large in my thoughts. When we're lost in the woods, the sight of a signpost is a great matter. And he who sees it first cries, look! And the whole party gathers round and stares. See, for, for Lewis... Before he came to faith, heaven and Christ, they were the outer, they were the other. And before C.S. Lewis came to faith, he doubted that the other and the outer even existed. He didn't believe it. But he was convinced that joy is what ultimately pointed him to Christ. And so it is that when we take up the role that Jesus has given to us in his kingdom to be joyful then we, in our joy, are the signposts pointing to Christ. And I am absolutely convinced, I'm absolutely convinced that our joy in the world in which we now live will attract people to us and through us to Christ. And so Jesus has given us this role. Be joy expressors. Joy reflectors. Secondly, okay, joy, having joy in us, 
reflecting joy, first aspect of the kingdom. Second one, don't, dis- don't di- get discouraged. We don't have long to go. It's quick because it's, it's plain to see. Those in the kingdom will not only be joyful, they will be that, but in addition, they will sacrifice all for the kingdom. In these two parables, Jesus is absolutely superlative. He says that the man who found the treasure sold all he had to buy the field and claim the treasure for his own. The pearl merchant, Jesus said, sold everything he had to buy the one pearl of great price. Superlative. All. Everything. Almost all of us in this room are going to need some repositioning for this to be true in our lives. But it can happen. The Apostle Paul, after he was converted, wrote, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Paul was finally repositioned. His view of himself, his view of his stuff, and his place in the kingdom. Moses, who by faith believed in the coming Messiah, repositioned himself. His view of himself, his view of his stuff, his place in the kingdom. And though he was for a time the crown prince of Egypt, Scripture tells us that Moses regarded disgrace for the sake of the kingdom as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. I say, I believe that you and I can be repositioned as well. And we can take our proper role in the kingdom of heaven as those who sacrifice everything for it. We don't need to make excuses. That's what people offered to the host of the banquet in the story Jesus told. The host said, come, everything is ready. The feast is prepared. Um, I've just bought a field. I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Um, I've just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Um, please excuse me. Well, I just got married, so I can't come. See, we are good at coming up with excuses for not having our priorities straight. For not sacrificing so that in all things Christ is preeminent. Immediately after recording the story of the host in the banquet, Luke records these words of Jesus. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. This is Jesus' call for sacrifice. He obviously doesn't mean hate in the the way that we use hate. He simply means to love less. He makes that clear in Matthew 10. Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. See, God has already said, honor your father and mother. 
God's already said, husbands, love your wives, and all of that. So Jesus' point is it's a matter of degree. We must love Jesus more than we love these. We must be willing to sacrifice all for Jesus' sake. But here's the thing. Jesus only asks us to make this sacrifice because Jesus knows the abundant life that he will give us in exchange. And that exchange will be worth it all. What might happen around here if we allow Jesus' parables to reposition us? What might happen here in our church, but also in in our community, if we were experiencing together and reflecting true joy in Christ? What would happen if all of us were living sacrificially, not just money, but with all of our lives, counting our richest gain as loss for the sake of the kingdom? I believe the kingdom of heaven would grow, as Jesus said it would grow, like the mustard seed. I think The gospel would then be pervasive, as Jesus said it would be, like the yeast. Because you and I have taken our proper place in this great drama, supporting and pointing to Christ. So I want us to allow the Lord to prove himself faithful to us as we play the roles he has given us in the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, again, thank you for your word. Lord, you told these stories on purpose, you told these parables on purpose, and it was to reposition all that would hear them, those to whom you spoke them and and those who would hear them for the next 2,000 years, to reposition us, Lord, to reorient our lives in accordance with your truth. And I pray that we would do that. Father, convince us this morning, no matter what the world may say, no matter what our experience and our lives might have been growing up, whatever, convince us that the kingdom of heaven is a place of joy. The place where your people gather to worship the church is to be a place of joy. Father, in order for it to be that in our lives and our churches, you have to be the focus of everything. In all things, you must be preeminent. We support you. We look to you in all things. And then, Lord Jesus, as we look to you, we can't help but be joyful. You are the great treasure. Help us to know and believe and rejoice in that truth. Father, help us to be sacrificial as well to see our lives and the things and the people in our lives for for what they truly are. Blessings to us. You bless us with relationships. You bless us with the things we need for this life. Thank you for that. But Lord, may they never take first place in our lives. May we be willing to let go of all of it for your sake, the sake of your kingdom and what you call us to do to advance your kingdom here on earth. Do these things in us and through us, we pray for your glory 
In Jesus' name, amen.